Good evening. It's good to see you joining us tonight. This is a reason for hope, and we are with you for the next hour, receiving your questions on the Bible. We are live and Lord willing, ready to delve into the Word to find the answers to the questions that you will provide. That's right. If you have questions on the Bible, perhaps a passage of Scripture or a verse that has uh, confused you or you'd like to delve further into, perhaps you're going through something in your life and you'd like a biblical perspective or um, on a worldview or world events, we are here to um, seek the Lord in his word with you and we're very glad you're there. So please send us your questions because you guide the show. That's right, we are live, live as can be, and uh, filled in your <laughs> questions. Today with me in the studio, I'm Dave Robson, your host. I forget to say who I am. Who cares who I am? I'm no one. I'm no one, <laughs> just a lowly host. And <laughs> with <Hi>. me, <laughs> I know, sad, isn't it? With me, as often is the case, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today? Uh, grateful to be here. Definitely also in the nobody class, but hopefully sharing <laughs> some true information. That's right. We are, we are somebodies in the Lord and in the Lord only. And also with us is author and pastor and such a handsome guy. Pastor Peter so I am Martin. Somebody. <laughs> you are somebody. The one, if, I'm if a any, somebody among nobodies. I'm okay with it. If that. anybody's somebody, <laughs> yeah. it, would be, it would be Peter. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. It's good to see you. It's good to be here with you. It's been a great week um, of a reason for hope. I'm excited about tonight. It's always cool to see where it goes because, again, we're live and the questions come in and we jump all around the place. It's very, very cool. Uh, a reason for hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You can Join us live at calvarychristianfellowship.com, also on Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You'll find us there. We have an app. If you go to your app store on your mobile device, so it's for Calvary Christian Fellowship, you will find an app where you can watch us there uh, as you move around your world and your life. Um, also on Roku and Apple TV, should you want to put us up on your big screen, why wouldn't you gather around with the kids and the pets and join us that way? Um, we would we would love that. On YouTube, we're at A Reason for Hope. That's the name of the channel there, A Reason for Hope. You can also email us your questions at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out, at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on the radio, you are listening to a pre-recorded show, usually our last show that we did. But do email us your questions, and we'll, we'll endeavor to get to those on our next show. And then consider, when you're not on your drive time, joining us on one of the the live platforms, um, so you can send us your questions live. And I personally will be fielding those questions as they come in. And as time allows, we will try to get to all of those questions. So that being said, uh, Peter, would you like to? He just sits there smiling at me, <laughs> trying to throw me off. Would you like to pray as we, as we yeah, go into the show? I would like to pray. <laughs> well, then you do that. I will do it. <laughs> uh, Father, we love you so much. We're grateful for you. We do pray that this time would be dedicated to your word and truth and that all those listening would be blessed by you, Lord. Uh, I pray that me and Sean would be able to speak in a way that honors you. And in your name, amen. It is true. So it is. Thursday, and you know what that means. <laughs> After being with you for a week and a half, I know what that means. It's Rhetoric Thursday. Can you explain what that is and what you guys have on your heart for today? Yeah, Rhetoric is basically a series of lessons we're equipping you all to do, not only giving a reason for the hope that is within you, but also to equip you in 
doing that effectively. Rhetoric is referring to communication or public speaking, and of course, doing so properly. We've gone through topics like effective listening and the sort of topics to pounce on when you are talking to or at somebody and knowing the difference. And of course, the sort of mistakes that we or others, but more specifically, we can make when getting our thoughts together and how to avoid them. Oftentimes, and as the topic is going to be today, it's simple mistakes, oftentimes just getting things in the wrong order and the way that we present them and misunderstandings ensuing. And of course, since we have two separate brains and any two or more people speaking, we want to make sure that those are in a line as much as possible when communication is taking place. So in rhetoric today, we're going to be discussing what's called the no true Scotsman fallacy. The mistake that people make in saying, and this would be an example of it, that no true fill in the blank would do that or feel this way. It would be demonizing someone or alienating someone from relevance on the basis of them not being good enough or not fitting a definition, which we're explaining here today, they haven't actually defined. So when it comes to the no true Scotsman fallacy, of course, at face value, it sounds strange, but it's a lot easier to make than most people realize, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So th that obscure sounding name that Sean just gave you, it actually comes from a little bit of an anecdote that people use to describe this fallacy. Because as you've noticed, when you've, uh, if you've been going through the fallacies with me and Sean, a lot of them have a lot of obscure Latin names. So uh, a couple of these, they just, instead of using the obscure Latin name, they use a more easy to understand kind of limerick that helps you understand what the fallacy actually is. So uh, the, uh, the anecdote in this case goes like this. Angus declares that Scotsmen do not put sugar on their porridge, to which Lachlan points out that he is a Scotsman and he puts sugar on his porridge. Furious, like a true Scot, Angus yells that no true Scotsman sugars his porridge. So this is where you make a wide generality about something, and then someone gives you a counterpoint, and you ignore it by saying, as Sean did, uh, what will no true person would do this. So uh, the example, the reason why I brought this one up this week is because, and this has been going on for years, uh, me and Sean talk a lot about a guy named Walt Heyer uh, on the show, someone who, do you have his book? Yeah, uh, it's uh, in our uh, dresser over there. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> but uh, Walt hires a guy who actually was convinced that he was a trans female. So he was a male. He was convinced that he actually was a female. He went through the surgeries, became a female, and eventually he actually detransitioned, became yep. a male again. And there's actually increasing amounts of people that have gone through the transition process and have been convinced that they did the wrong thing and they've ha had to go back. Now, what's happened a lot more recently, especially with the topic of starting to administer transitioning drugs, so this is the book, uh, that's the camera. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting it. Uh, so since people have started to increasingly give transitioning drugs to minors, people uh, who are under the age of 18, not only using various drugs to increase hormones, uh, to give testosterone to young girls and to give uh, estrogen to young boys, but also performing surgeries like double mastectomies, cutting off the healthy breasts of young girls, things like that. Uh, the topic of detransitioning is becoming a little bit more embroiled. You could say it's becoming a little bit more heated. And because of that heat that's coming on, people who have detransitioned 
are becoming lightning rods of controversy, and they're being attacked by people who are believers in the gender ideology, that men can become women and women can become men. Now, the reason why they're becoming lightning rods is because the main uh, pole of their argumentation of why can't you just wait when it comes to a minor who wants to transition? Why can't you wait until they're past the age of 18? You wouldn't give a minor a tattoo. You wouldn't let them permanently alter their body in that way. Why would you allow a 15-year-old to permanently alter their body with these types of drugs? The main argumentations that have been given is that the drugs that are being given are completely reversible. They do no long-term damage whatsoever. And if these kids don't do these things, then they will commit suicide, is put in that either-or category. So this so week— Instead of the transgender being someone who struggles with gender dysphoria, uh, dysmorphia, rather, it's assuming, like with the porridge, a Scotsman is someone who doesn't put this in their porridge. That's right. That's the assumption, that a true transgender is caricatured to be someone who, if they didn't reassign their gender, would have or would commit suicide. That's right. And they would never regret it. And so if someone regrets it, well, you weren't a true transgender, obviously. Uh, you know which how you come up with medical verification yeah. for that. <laughs> which still is quite ridiculous. So uh, a video that was going viral this week. A young girl was convinced to be put on testosterone at the age of 15. She did five years of it, uh, and it ended up thinning out her hairline. She has to shave her head now. It permanently dropped her boy voice to the place where she sounds like a... 13-year-old going through puberty, a 13-year-old male going through puberty, and she's permanently stuck like that for the rest of her life. And she basically was just talking about how much she regretted doing this to her body and how she recognizes that she's, as she put it in her quotations, uh, past the point of no return, that she can never go back to the body that she had. And again, this throws into uh, sharp contrast the two blatant uh, proponents that we've gone over before, that they're reversible, and that if you don't do it, that someone is more likely to commit suicide. Here's someone who's showing that the drugs are not reversible, and she's actually more depressed now after undergoing these drugs than she was before taking them. So you have a counterexample. And instead of saying, well, you know, I guess some people see it this way and some people see it the other way, and maybe it works for some and maybe it doesn't work for others, they instead have to say, no, 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 she's not a true transgender. Uh, and therefore, she's being openly attacked, mocked, and ridiculed. So if you were to go onto this young girl's video today, you would see pages of just people blatantly calling her out, making fun of her, mocking her, encouraging her to kill herself, things like that, which is not great. Now, this exists in multiple areas and venues of life. Actually, while we were talking, I did think of a biblical example. So uh, I always want to make sure we have one. Yeah, so... In the Bible, there is a book called Proverbs, and Proverbs deals with practical everyday wisdom. It's not really designed to be a theological book, meaning that we're not going to the book of Proverbs to understand great theological truths. We're instead going to the book of the Proverbs, like I said, to go through practical daily wisdom on how to interact with things that are going on every day. Uh, one of the big ones is parenting. Now, there are multiple proverbs that talk about parenting, and a lot of them are in these kind of strong statements. For instance, a uh, favorite is, train up a child in a way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So, people looking at that proverb, if a child goes wrong, and you're going to take that proverb seriously, you're going to take it to its logical conclusion, 
Well, then what do you have to conclude? You didn't raise your kid in the way he should have gone, right? Mm -hmm. So any rebellious child is the fault of the parent. Now, once again, when you go through the book of Proverbs, it actually is not intending to make universal statements that can never be falsified. What it's trying to teach us is the general rule that we're supposed to abide by in order to be conformed to God's wisdom. So I'll give you another example. Uh, I could say, going through various Proverbs, that if you work hard, you dedicate yourself to your craft, and you work on being competent in what you're doing, you will be successful and you will make money. That's a general rule. Are there exceptions to the rule? Yes, there are people that work really hard, they become very competent, and the bottom gets dropped out from underneath them, and it's to no fault of their own, right? So that can happen. Also, there are very incompetent people who become very successful and wealthy. Once again, the Proverbs are not designed to give us generalized rules like the no true Scotsman fallacy. They are instead trying to give us overarching standards of behavior that help us conform to God's wisdom. And because of that, there will be, and we're in a fallen world, God is present, but he is also distant. There will always be exceptions to the rules that God has set up within his good creation. Uh, there are also ones uh, in counseling I hear people question oftentimes the salvation of fellow believers. Well, you know, no true Christian would listen to music like that. Yeah. Well, no true Christian would ever stumble or fall in that particular way, right? Like when Robbie Zacharias, uh, the issues concerning his life came out, people say, well, no true Christian would behave like that. Well, actually, yeah, some true Christians, Christians would, would behave that way. It doesn't mean that it's Christ-like behavior. <laughs> and that's the key, is a proper definition of what a true Christian, a true Scotsman, a true whatever is. If you overgeneralize it and then hyper-define it, that's the fallacy. Mm, absolutely. And uh, I'll just give one more, and then uh, we'll talk about how to avoid this, because it is easy to avoid. It's yeah. easy to fall into, but it's also easy to avoid. And then also how to address it when someone does it to you. Uh, I have noticed in, in Christian apologetics sometimes, uh, I've, I've heard people misappropriate various arguments for the existence of God. The big one would be the moral argument. So I have heard Christians say, well, you can't be an atheist and be moral. No, that's not the Which argument. is not the moral argument, right? The moral argument is you have no philosophical grounding for objective morality outside of God. It doesn't suggest that you can't be moral and be an atheist. And so when someone says, well, here's an atheist who's moral, well, they're not a true atheist then. They're not living in their atheism correctly. Uh, because the assumption is an atheist, an atheist in this fallacy is defined as someone who is immoral. Right. Is that a proper definition of an atheist? No. Even we would say no. <laughs> no. Absolutely. So, Sean, how do you avoid making this mistake, and how do you address it when it's made towards you? No words. In more than two words, it is define your terms properly. And the best way to do this is either to A, ask questions. Maybe if the audience that you're speaking with is present and can represent themselves, you can clarify those terms. But say if you're speaking for yourself as a Christian, the no true Christian fallacy is broken once you can properly define what a Christian is. And in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, I think we're given the most straightforward example in history. Paul, speaking to the church in Corinth, says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I am only an example to you insofar as my character is modeling Christ. Now note, did Christ watch R-rated movies? 
Well, he didn't watch any movies. So the question <laughs> is an application of heart, not in conduct. Is the character of Christ someone who never sinned? Yes, but then you have to make sure you're specific in saying, so we're supposed to be sinless, and if you sin, you're not Christ-like. That would be a bad definition. Otherwise, no one could be Christian. And that's when the definition coming from Christ himself said, this is how you will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another, the kind of love that he modeled for us, that we share common truth statements like the non-negotiables that we discuss and what makes or breaks you as a Christian. These are the sort of things you have to take into consideration. And notice, you have to think about this a little bit. What makes a true Christian? What makes a true gender dysmorphic struggle person, whatever? What makes something what it is? And once that's properly defined, then you can say, not that's not how a true Christian would act. You'd say, is that a way? a true Christian would act. Two words, but what a difference it makes, not only avoiding assumptions, but also misrepresentations. And like a lot of these fallacies, it takes a lot of humility to be able to, so if you make this fallacy, which is easy, it's easy to overgeneralize, it's easy to miscategorize things. When you're called out on it, it takes a lot of humility to say, you're right. That was an overgeneralization, or I was hasty with my words, I wasn't very clear, I'm sorry, let me make myself more clear in the way that I'm communicating, right? That takes a lot of humility. Now, if you're dealing with someone um, in an argument, right, a debate, a discussion about a issue, whether it's on Christianity or whatnot, and they commit this fallacy, it's going to be very difficult to, <laughs> to call them out on it because they've already doubled down. You've already given a counterexample and they've already said, no, no true Christian would ever do this. Well, then you could point out to them, as you said, Sean, you could follow up and say, well, what do you mean by a Christian? When you say no new, no true Christian would do this, please define your terms. What is a Christian in your estimation? Something like that. You can, you can try to ask in a soft, gentle way, right? A gentle answer turns away wrath. You could try in a gentle way to try to get the person to categorize themselves correctly so you can carry on the conversation. But you're already on shaky grounds when someone doubles down on a fallacy. So... The odds of you being able to turn it around are are low. That doesn't mean they're non-existent, but it means that they are low. And that means, as we've talked about before, know when to quit, right? Know when a argument is just not going to go anywhere or the person is not open to dialoguing with you in truth. Yeah, so make sure that those are understood, not only what you're talking about, but a willingness to revisit that topic if it's missed. Otherwise, it doesn't make for good communication. That's what we want to avoid, and good communication is what we want to pursue. So what would be a good example of the true Scotsman? Well, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Am I someone who's being a model and a representation of Jesus Christ? And if someone says, well, no Christian would do that, that is a valid statement. Would Jesus have done that? And the answer is no. Then you can say, oh, <laughs> I'm at fault or they're at fault. But understand as well, if you reverse the argument, instead of defining what it means to be a Christian, arguing from an illustration, the true Christian, rather than a definition, that's when manipulation or mistakes happen. And we want to make sure we'll be addressing more about uh, attributing motive here next week. But the key is just that. Know, excuse me, know what something is, and then you can identify what it isn't in life. That's the simplest way to put it. Great. Good stuff. Thank you. We hope that helps you out, helps to equip you. We have questions coming in. 
Um, Zachary, thank you for joining us. He shared a story about uh, someone being healed from polio before there was uh, vaccines. But the question is, does God still heal in miraculous ways? And also, is it a case of just having perfect faith and really believing, not having doubts, and then you'll be healed? And I remember I one of the first churches I went to, it was kind of that kind of thinking, like, what a, you just got to really... Cast the doubts out and just really believe. Right. And if and if you don't really believe, then you won't be healed. But if if you do, then you will. And it was you know it was maddening, really, um, right. honestly. But um, that's the that's the question from Zachary. Thank you for that question. Uh, let me read First Corinthians twelve. It says there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but notice this: the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Now notice these are all ongoing statements, not who used to. Now it goes on to list some of the ways. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given word of wisdom through the Spirit, hopefully what's being demonstrated here, to another word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit to another working of miracles, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, etc., etc. Now, there's two qualifiers here that both answer and avoid the mistake in your question. When we're talking about the issue of, does God still heal? Well, obviously there are examples of it where there is no explanation apart from divine intervention, but we don't want to jump on that, and we'll clarify that more in a moment. The second is, again, God is allowed to do what he wants. The question is, is it in line with his nature? And we test his nature through what he's revealed himself through his word as. So if that's then the case, what does his word tell us? People are given gifts, spiritual gifts, from the Holy Spirit. The God who heals can work through people as he wills. But understand that just like the gift of wisdom and teaching, administrations and tongues aren't for everybody, the same is true for healings. And if you say, well, I haven't been or I haven't witnessed or I haven't experienced a healing, that means that I have somehow a deficiency of faith. I have this lame immune system that I've been fearfully, wonderfully made to have, or I'm put and blessed in a nation where I have access to doctors and medical technology and so forth. On it goes, but the point being made is when we assume so much about God to say, unless he's doing this specific gift, is that the be-all sign to end-all signs? Is that how I know that God's really working? And the answer is no. The fact that God is speaking through me and Peter is not only a miracle in of itself, but as a legitimate a work of the Holy Spirit, as it would be if he was healing or if he was speaking in languages we didn't know but the purpose of them needs to be understood. So again, the question is, and this is where the controversy comes in, uh, Pastor Scott Richards used to hold the position of a cessationist, like ceasing, that the idea that the Holy Spirit has ceased from working miracles, why? Because throughout the Old and New Testaments, the working of public miracles in that fashion were, of course, public healings, gifts of tongues, especially at Pentecost, and of course other tangible external signs and miracles, but always to verify God's word. Then the argument is made, a bit of an inference, and he'd be the first to admit this, but we'll be gracious to the people who don't share a worldview, that since the whole of God's word has been revealed until further notice, 
has been revealed, then that means that the purpose of miracles, that aspect of God's nature needing to perform those miracles in that way, has ceased. That God's done in that way because this is what that was meant to prove. But the problem is, if we then ask the question, and they would cite 1 Corinthians 13 out of context, we go to 1 Corinthians 12 and note that all these things are still actively described as part of God's work. Then we have to clarify the question. Why is God doing a gift of healing? Would he have to do that gift of healing? And then, once that's clarified, we can say, oh, that makes sense. That's what he's been doing from the beginning. God's nature doesn't change, so he's obviously not going to entertain you with healings. He's not going to heal you for the sake of sparing you a bill because that's not God's purpose in our lives. But if, on the other hand, we need either A, a blessing, B, it would be an opportunity for deeper fellowship, or, and this is most important, it would be a sign to unbelievers for the purpose of the sharing of the gospel, that's great. But there are other ways of doing that, more accessible ways, like, say, for example, words of wisdom and words of knowledge, and no cessationist would argue those gifts have teach or those gifts have ceased so when it comes to the question does god still heal it would be a either a matter of can which is of course then it's a matter of how which is what we'll discuss next then it's a matter of why and of course that's where the controversy is the how is what's going to be most important in this matter, though, and this is what we all need to understand. Uh, Nabil Qureshi, in his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, he came from a sect of Islam that was very much heavy into spiritual phenomena, visions and dreams and so forth, and God met him where he was at. But what was interesting about the way that he clarified and defined miracles and the supernatural, he was very smart in making sure that our standards were as high as possible if we were to say, this is not a coincidence, this is a divine healing. And he went on in his book to illustrate a guy who had some oil spill on his eyes, he was blind, and then he could suddenly see. Would we call that a miracle? In a biblical sense, he said no, and he was absolutely right to do so. If on the other hand, he were to be contacted by a Christian family who said, hey, we were praying together and we felt led specifically with you in mind to do this, to anoint you with oil. And in Scripture, it notes, if any of you is sick, let him seek, you know, not only pray, but uh, through the anointing of oil and all that, so forth. James 5. And, you know, this is a fake situation, but he's making a fine point. Then they were to anoint his eyes with oil. Then he was to be healed. There would be no question as to the source and the motive of this action, this healing. That would be an example of God healing, and no one, cessationist or otherwise, would limit God in saying he can't do those things. The question is, would he? And is it, ultimately, in line with what God does do miracles for, to verify his word? We see this all the time happening in areas where they don't necessarily have access to either A, the gospel, or B, medical technology, mm -hmm. so there's no uh, other explanations available to the skeptics in the village, they would see the miracle, just like in the Old Covenant and the New, and say, wow, God is really working here. There's no other way to explain this other than God did this. Hmm. If he's going to work, he's going to make sure there's no wiggle room on that. And I'm repeating the point because it is just that important. We need high standards for miracles. Not so high that we define them out of existence, but we understand them in light of Scripture, and that's the key. Yeah, I, I would encourage you to read a book called uh, The Scars That Have Shaped Me by Benita Risner. 
Uh, really excellent book. Definitely, in, in my opinion, I think it's probably the best book written by Christians to help understand God and suffering. Uh, the woman, and I think it will especially resonate with you because the woman who wrote it, she had polio as a young mm. girl and then developed post-polio syndrome afterwards and just afflicted her entire life. And she does talk about how uh, she would go to some faith healing uh, meetings and receive mild amounts of healings and uh, different amounts of relief from the various struggles that she was having health-wise. But then sometimes she wouldn't receive any. And she's got this great moment in the book where she's sitting in a prayer meeting with her church and she's throwing a bit of a fit. And she's like, God, you know, you're not helping me at all. I'm really upset with you. And that's it. And so her prayer leader kind of pulls her aside. Is like, hey, Vanitha, like, let's talk. You know, <laughs> what's going on? And she's like, well, you know, I've been struggling with this polio since I was five years old. God's not doing anything about it. I think that he's abandoned me and I'm just really upset about it. And her prayer leader said something very wise. He said, everybody, all Christians and all believers in God have always loved the deliverance ministries of the Holy Spirit, but they have always resented the sustaining ministry of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And she said, the people of Israel all rejoiced when God delivered them from Egypt through the Red Sea, but they all complained about the manna, right? Because the Red Sea ministry, the Red Sea miracle was one that delivered them from their problems. The manna was something that sustained them within their problems. Mm. But it's no less a miracle, right? It's no less a miracle that God gives you the strength to endure a bad circumstance if he gives you the miraculous healing to deliver you from a circumstance. Yeah. So I think it's a mistake that we as Christians, we, when we pray for miraculous healings, we think that God has said no to them because oftentimes he, he doesn't say no. He might say no to what you asked, but he's never going to say no to giving you divine power to deal with your circumstances, mm. right? So it is miraculous when someone can undergo severe amounts of physical harm and sickness and still worship and praise God. Mm. That's a miraculous event. That is a working of the Holy Spirit, and it is beautiful. And she talks about in the book how she praises God for those moments because they always brought her nearer to him. Mm. So, uh, again, highly encourage you to read that book. Uh, I, I was actually just counseling someone yesterday where they were looking at a circumstance where they feel as though they're following God and doing all the right things, and their life is just going further and further into decline. But someone that they are not very happy with seems to be going further away from God, and their life is prospering. And if you hold the belief that prosperity and healing come from faith mm. and belief in God, then you have to conclude that somebody who is prospering must be have this secret faith before God that we just can't see, right. even if they're doing all these outwardly terrible things, and I must just lack faith, and that's why my life is going down the toilet. Because no true faithful person right. would not be blessed. Would not no. be healed. <laughs> And uh, I, I show this person, well, biblically, we don't see that. There's actually insinuations in, say, the book of Exodus, as well as Psalm 73, which is another beautiful psalm dealing with this issue pretty head-on, that show us that oftentimes God will introduce suffering into somebody's life in order to get their attention to, to help correct their character, mm. which is far more important to the Holy Spirit than giving you a physical benefit. And oftentimes God will actually prosper someone as a sign of punishment. A mm. uh, very good example of this would be the prodigal son. When he's prospering, he's moving further away from the father, and it's not until the famine hits that he goes back to the father. 
So sometimes a prosperity in someone's life is actually a sign of God giving them over to their desires and passions that go contrary to him. So mm. we have to be very careful and cautious about that as a church. And Jesus gives us the correct way to pray in faith. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Yeah. Right? That's the correct way to pray for a healing. Yeah. Wonderful. What was that book again? The Scars That... The Scars That Have Shaped Me. The Scars That Have Shaped Me. Yeah, because it was... Zachary's question was regarding polio, so it sounds like that would be a very relevant book indeed. And, and we um, we talked about what you mentioned, was it last night or Monday night? I know it was with Pastor Scott about that prospering, you know, what is it to prosper and exactly what you talked about. So if you want to check out the archive on YouTube, we kind of went into that a bit more as well. Mm. Thank you so much. I hope that uh, helps you out, Zachary. Thank you for that question. A great question. Uh, a question from Johnny, um, which just scrolled away from me because someone else commented, <laughs> which is a good problem to have. This is a great, this is a, a simple but great question. Are you ready for this? What does it mean um, to love your neighbor as yourself? And I guess a question could be, what does it mean to love ourselves? You know, but what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? It seems like a simple question, but that's pretty profound. No, yeah. it's a really profound question. Yeah, uh, it's actually, I mean, according to Jesus, it's only one of two questions that matter ultimately in life. Right. Yeah. So, so good luck, guys. Yeah. So, uh, Praying uh, for you. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll just give some of the background of it, and then I'll let you just add on whatever you feel is missing. So when Jesus is asked about what the greatest commandment is, he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two lay all the law and prophets. So Everything you see ethically within the scriptures can be summed up in those two statements. If you are relating yourself correctly to God, you are saved and you have eternal uh, reconciliation with him. If you're orienting yourself correctly to your neighbor, then you are behaving in a way that is godly. You are acting in a Christ-like way, loving people in a way that perfects and shows and reveals God's perfect love and character to the world. So those two are the most important statements. There's a couple things that I need to point out about the way that he's communicating before we can get into the actual what it means. In our culture, we have this concept of self-love. And so some people read that and they say, oh, okay, so if I want to learn how to love people, I need to learn how to love myself. But that's not how Jesus orients the statement. He doesn't say, "If you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love yourself and love your neighbor in reaction to that. He instead says, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, he assumes that self-love is happening to a certain extent. Now, again, I'll, I'll explain the different ways that you can interpret that. But self-love, from a biblical point of view, is actually forbidden, right? It's something that is considered sinful. Now, it's not that God doesn't want us to have high self-esteem. It's that God doesn't want our self-esteem to come from self-affirmation. Self-affirmation is the sin of pride. It's narcissism looking inwardly and trying to validate self. What the Christian is trying to do is trying to be humble enough in order to allow God to validate us, right? So for his word to hold the most truth in the way that we conduct ourselves. So we allow God to both condemn us when we're doing wrong behavior, but also to exalt and forgive us through the sacrifice of Jesus. We need to allow God to do those things and not allow our own words to do those things. Uh, Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, when he's being accused of misbehavior by the Corinthian church, which they did often, 
uh, he essentially says, look, it's not a very big thing to me that you think I've done something wrong, but it's an even lesser thing that I don't think I've done anything wrong, for I know that God will judge me. What Paul is saying is, I don't believe I've done anything wrong, but it doesn't mean that I'm actually innocent. You think I have done something wrong, but it doesn't make me guilty. All that really matters is God's opinion of the situation. And so I need to be able to orient myself in submission to him and allow him to speak truth into what's going on in my life. That's the first and great commandment. That's where real, quote unquote, self-love comes from. It's not me loving myself. It's allowing God's opinion of me to carry the day. That's the whole point. Now, this is also very important because Jesus is giving us a very philosophically heavy way of understanding reality. If you want to understand reality, this is the direction that Jesus is giving us. First, understand your relationship to God, then understand your relationship to neighbor, and then you will understand your relationship to yourself. Our culture has completely flipped that on its head. They say, understand your relationship to yourself, affirm yourself, then you'll be able to love your neighbor, and then you might have some time to give God his due, right? That's kind of the perspective that our culture has. It's completely antithetical to what Jesus was teaching. Now, what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? So uh, there's a simple way of putting it, and that is whatever things that I would want to be done to me, I am seeking to do that for others. This is the golden rule, right? So we believe that the golden rule, it's pretty obvious (laughs) that Jesus is just quoting this passage that is from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So the idea is I am when I'm thinking about how to behave towards others, I should be asking the question of not just from the Eastern way of thinking of I'm not going to do negative things that I wouldn't want done to me, right? That's Confucius. Don't do unto others the things that you wouldn't want them to do to you. Jesus is giving a positive affirmation because the Christian call is not simply to do no harm to others. The Christian call is to actively love others. So therefore, if I want to think about what would be loving behaviors towards other people, it helps me to think, what would be loving towards me, right? How would I want people to treat me in these situations? How would I want people to um, respond to me if I was communicating to them in this way? This also means that that's insufficient in and of itself because everybody is unique and different. If I want to be able to love my neighbor as myself, I must understand them as myself. Right? So I tell this to married couples all the time, especially to men. The only command that we are given in 1 Peter 3, so in 1 Peter 3, Peter gives commands to women and men. He gives women six verses. He gives men one verse. The only real thing that Peter commands men to do is to dwell with their wives with understanding. And so whenever I hear a man say, well, I just don't get women. Well, you know, that's like your one job. You don't have to get all women, but you got to get that woman. You got to get that woman. You got to understand why she's doing what she's doing. You need to be able to anticipate her needs. You need to be able to meet her with compassion and empathy. Now, she can meet you halfway and help you understand her. And that, I think, is would be a godly behavior on her part. But ultimately, your command is to understand her in the same way that you understand your own needs and therefore give to her what you would want, right? So that's that's another kind of broad way to understand it. So anything else you'd like to add to that? Yeah, it's basically modeling the character of God. We had a follow-up uh, where Annie was making a clarification. If in the Old Testament, doesn't God reward 
positive behavior and punish bad behavior uh, and so on and so forth. And that's because he was fulfilling the terms of the covenant they agreed to. Him keeping the promises that they both agreed to keep are different from his nature, which is, of course, to be love, that God is love. And by this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So we also ought to lay down our lives to the brethren. This is the first epistle of John. So if we understand that's the model, we want to be like God, then to love your neighbor as yourself is to basically ask the old uh, early 2000s, late 90s slogan, what would Jesus do? And that's the model that if I see this person as made in the image and likeness of God and treat them accordingly, I owe to them and offer to them the same dignity, respect, and desire for general well-being that I have for myself. Now, before you say, well, I hate myself, therefore I can hate other people. No, you don't. If you hated yourself, then you wouldn't either A, be here, or B, you uh, basically wouldn't fall into that trap of, oh, I'm so ugly, I hate myself. No, if you really hated yourself, you'd be glad you were ugly. The point being made is nonsensical, and we need to make sure that's grounded in fact. And the once fact, again, yeah. like that does ignore the first part of the statement, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart soul, mind, and strength. Let's say you really did hate yourself. Is that how God sees you? So at, at that point, you are still missing the, the main central command, which is to put God first and his word first, and then to allow that to inform your view of your neighbor and self. Which is the whole point, just like anticipating the needs of your fellow man and ministering to them like God would. It's also understanding God and saying, does this honor him in the way I'm doing, living my life? That would be the whole point. Great. Thank you so much. We hope that helps you out. Uh, Johnny, that question was from. Thank you for your question. A great question and very profound one, as we said. Um, There was an off-air question about the Trinity and what the Trinity is like. Oh, boy. Um, which we can explain very easily, right, Sean? Go ahead. Neapolitan ice cream. <laughs> everything you need to know about yeah. the Trinity and more. <laughs> I like to get a scoop of all three flavors. <laughs> yeah, but uh, then you'd have to ask, so is there only one essence or molecule of ice cream that constitutes all three flavors simultaneously and yet able to taste independently from one another? For those of you whose brain are melting out of your ears, that's to be expected. The Trinity is unlike anything in creation because it's the unique characteristics and attributes of the creator. Now, I don't want to sound condescending. I'm being careful in how I'm phrasing this because as a wise man once observed, any lengthy discussion on the Trinity inevitably descends into heresy because it's just beyond us. And that's the point. So when it comes to what the Trinity is like, there should be one and only one thing that comes out of your mouth after those words. It's like what the Bible describes, because that's where we got it from. If God's going to reveal himself to us, then we need to grasp the fact there are aspects of him we won't understand, but can at least comprehend, that we'll understand them here, but not fully in execution, just acknowledging that he's there, he's him, and we're us. We function as one being and one person. And again, there is ways of phrasing this. We're just trying to be simple so that everyone here understands the point we're trying to make. The point of emphasis is the Trinity is a term used to describe a doctrine that's defining four fundamental facts given to us in Scripture. The first is, according to the Bible, there is one 
and only one God, that of all the things in existence that could call itself the being with the most power, the pinnacle of power, the source and standard for right and wrong, absolute goodness, absolute justice, absolute all logically positive attributes, right? There is only one thing that could go by that title. We aren't pantheists. We're not, uh, meaning that we believe that everything is God. We're not, um, what would be the word, uh, henotheists, meaning that there's lots of gods out there, but we just prefer the God of Israel. We are monotheists. Mono, meaning in one, theos, meaning God. Monotheism is the first term used to describe the Trinity. Because if we believed in three gods, then we wouldn't need a word for it. We'd just say, oh yeah, the Father, Son, and Spirit, those are our gods. We wouldn't need a word to describe it. The first term is monotheism. The second is that when we say there is a God, there are things that only that God could truthfully say about itself and not be lying. For example, being the creator of the universe. If something claimed to create the universe and it wasn't God, they'd either be God or they were lying. They'd either be telling the truth, in which case they did something only God can do, or they're not God and they're claiming something about God for themselves. That's the point. Uh, Other things, the judge of all the earth, the Uh, Titles, for example, in the Old Testament, like the first and the last, Isaiah 44 and verse 6, I am the first, I am the last, besides me there is no God. Not a lot of wiggle room there. It's the sort of things that only God could truthfully say about himself. That's the second fact. There are things that only God can be. Only God can be. Mm. Now, the third fact of the Trinity and the reason why this doctrine exists isn't just that there is one God. It isn't just that there are things about God that are only true for him. Jews, um, Orthodox Jews, uh, Muslims, and some forms of pagans would fully agree with those things, that there are things that make you a God, and there are things that make you a man, and there are things that make you a not God, right? So understand those points. The third fact of the Trinity is that there are multiple persons. Notice we're being specific in our phrasing in that the being that is God, there is only one. There are multiple persons that claim these divine attributes for themselves. The Father is credited as creator in the later chapters of Isaiah. The Son is credited as creator in Colossians chapter 1. And the Spirit is is credited as our creator in the book of Job chapter 33. So we have a conundrum on our hands. Is there one God or are there three gods? There's people who have come up with false doctrines and heresies who would just go off of these three facts and say, oh, well, God sometimes the Father, sometimes the Son, sometimes it's the Spirit. That's called modalism. Or they would say, oh, well, Jesus only Pentecostals, for example, Unitarians would say, emphasize that first fact. There is only one God, biblically, which we agree with. And the Father is just an expression of Jesus in a relational sense, and the Spirit is an expression of him in his active sense. Jehovah's Witnesses would make this point of emphasis in a different way. But the point being made is just that. They would emphasize three out of the four facts, and you're believing in a fake God. Now note, the illustration of the Trinity being like water, 
with just the first three facts would make sense. Sometimes it's water in a liquid, sometimes it's vapor, sometimes it's a solid, an ice, gas, or in uh, just water as we know it, right? H2O molecules expressing different ways. But there's a fourth fact that makes the Trinity a thing, that makes it impossible for us to define God in any other way than what this doctrine lays out for us as Scripture reveals it, and that it's that within the one God that can only be that kind of God, that can only do the sort of things that God does, within these three persons, they're able to act, function, and think independently from one another. We read this in Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 16, where God speaking says, I'm not held in secret since time was, for then I was there, and now the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me. God says that God and his spirit, which is somehow acting and sending God and authority over God. What's going on here? Likewise, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1 and verse 9, at Jesus' baptism, Jesus, who we believe is God, the Son, was baptized in the Jordan River. His location verified in time and space? Good. A voice comes from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, and the Spirit descends upon him, not itself, him as a dove. Notice, the voice didn't come from the dove. The voice came from heaven. The sun's still in the water. And unless we believe that God is a really good puppeteer, we recognize this as interesting. Now, there's other passages, of course, that would be used to clarify this. There are many more unique divine attributes that we could go through that are all going to be important in your apologetic. I recommend you all do your research on this because it is not a negotiable issue. This is foundational, salvific, meaning referring to salvation, issue. If you deny proactively the Trinity, you're not a Christian. But if, on the other hand, you recognize these things as unique, then you're not going to be caught into the trap of, well, it's like a four-leaf clover. They're all a plant in substance, but the leaves are unique. Again, what about the fact that there are only, according to the Trinity, one leaf in this illustration, mm. one thing that could be described as a plant in all of existence, that these leaves can act and function independently from one another, yet remain the one and only leaf, indivisible in its unique attribute as the clover. You see the problem. There's nothing we can compare this to in creation. So when you hear people say the Trinity is like an egg or the Trinity is like water or the Trinity is like anything, smack them upside the head because that's heresy. That's false doctrine. It's a false and bad comparison, and it's leading people astray. And frankly, it's making Peter and I's jobs harder because then we have to clean up the mess. So with all that being said, note the point of emphasis. The Trinity is not like anything. It's absolutely unique. The Trinity needs to be understood as it's defined, not how it's been summarized, not how it's been mischaracterized, not how it's been illustrated. The whole point is you can't. You're talking about the creator and comparing him to creation. But that's also the point of emphasis. There are things in Scripture we use to define the Trinity. That's where the concept came from, and that's how we know that we aren't worshiping a fake God. It's not our speculation. It's his revelation. Because, note, in something this complicated and convoluted, if they were making this up, they could have come up with something a lot more simple to handle. If something can't fit in your head, it probably means it didn't come from there, and that's the whole point. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, I usually give people a, a thought experiment to help kind of stretch their brains a little bit and understand why it's very difficult to articulate the being of God. So, uh, you know, we exist in three dimensions. Uh, if you were to communicate, let's say you're talking to an, an Atari game, you know, those of you guys who are old enough to know what an Atari is, but it was Super Nintendo. <laughs> Why did like you a, look at me when yeah, you said that? <laughs> like uh, people I knew what it would was. be old enough to play Atari uh, when it first came out. Uh, but anyway, you know, if you're trying to communicate with a two-dimensional being, right, you could actually talk to someone who has length and breadth, but they don't have any depth. They don't conceptualize depth, which means that they don't uh, have any concept of objects. They can understand shapes, but they can't understand objects. So if you were to try to explain to that person what a cube was, how would you do that? Mm. Right? Now, just take a second and try to figure out what kind of wording you would use to try to explain to this person what a cube was like. Now, you would probably have to say something to the effect of, well, it's, it's like six squares put together. But the problem is, from a two-dimensional person, what does six squares put together look like? One square. Right? It looks like this wall, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it just looks like, yeah, just six squares put together. This is another, it, the idea that it could, that something could have depth and those squares can mm. coalesce to make a unique object is something that person cannot conceptualize of. No amount of language will ever help that person conceptualize it because it's beyond their concept. That's the whole point. Mm. The difference between me and a two-dimensional person is infinitely less than the difference between me and God. So that's why in the Bible, it uses very careful language to help lay out the four points that Sean just made to help us just grapple with the awe and majesty and reverence we ought to be given God, that we understand God is beyond me. I am on earth. He is in heaven. Let my words be few. Hey, you know, this is just the nature of God. I'm accepting this by faith. This is how he's revealed himself to me. And I just want to trust in that. And that is okay to say. Um, you know, and if someone wants to utilize a metaphor, just allow them to understand that that metaphor is not going to be a direct metaphor. It's just something to help conceptualize a particular point. So I could say, well, you know, God, the, the nature of the Trinity can, has facets in common with, right? So I could say, well, it's, it, there's, there's commonality in, let's say, uh, the distinction between mind and body, for instance, that mm. the son functions as the physical manifestation of the consciousness of the father, right? Now, once again, that metaphor falls apart if you start picking at it too much, but you could say, okay, well, that helps me understand the son's job description within the Trinity, and it helps me understand the invisible nature, why God the Father is referred to as invisible, but again, the metaphor just doesn't incorporate all the factors of the Trinity that we need. So, uh, like Sean said, we always ex uh, need to exercise caution in trying to describe an infinite God. Yeah, very good. It it did help me out a lot to, you know, realize the Bible says, who can know the mind of God, who can understand his ways, his ways are higher, his thoughts are higher. We tend to want to understand something fully um, to believe it, but that's not really consistent with how we live. I mean, I, I go to a doctor, you know, for a procedure or whatever, because uh, he's smarter than me, he's more skilled than me. I walk away and heal, and I don't really understand fully what he did. Maybe some people don't like to be as ignorant as I am, but you know, <laughs> I just trust him to do it and walk away. You know, how much more, like you said, how much how much higher is God? You know, that that distance. So the Bible literally says, you know, we we can't fully under, understand that. You know, and that's and that's okay. And I'm glad that God 
you know, is, that I can't understand him because if I could, then he'd be on my level and you don't want a God like me. It's a lame God. That's a lame <laughs> God, yes. Yes, thank you for forcing that. Uh, quick how, while we're coming off the end of a show, but um, quick housekeeping thing. I understand there were some audio problems on Facebook. Just some advice for in future. If you're having some issues on one platform, jump to another platform because I understand on our website and YouTube there wasn't the audio issues. Sometimes there's a platform-specific uh, problem tonight it seemed like on Facebook there were some audio issues which sometimes aren't our, you know, on our end. So just some advice if you're having any kind of problem, maybe try another platform and see if you can find one that's that's clean. If it's a across the board thing, then we'll obviously be able to fix that. Um, a quick question, very quick, from Johnny. Um, how um, how much worse can the world get? before the rapture happens how much how worse than worse. it is today but the more you focus on this world and i guarantee you with the access of information we have it is not a service it is not a benefit it is depressing it will and it can get worse but the more you focus on yourself your convenience your ease your circumstances it's only going to distract you from where your eyes should be Jesus said, Matthew 24, when you see these things begin to happen, he said, look up for the day of your salvation draws near. We are very accustomed to ease, very accustomed to simplicity, and very accustomed to the freedom that's slowly being taken away, sometimes not very slowly anymore. The point being made is make the most of it while you have today. While it's still light, serve. Note that God has gotten through, uh, gotten people through, his people through in particular, darker times than this point in history, and the church didn't collapse. Life was harder, but Jesus was still on the throne. Make sure that he's the focus, because that's the whole point of prophecy, to know God isn't surprised by any of these things, the world getting as worse as it was, and he still died for it. Make him your focus. Otherwise, again, it's just going to get sad. Wonderful. I hope that helps you out, Johnny. And you, you said one last question, but... Send as many questions as you want. Email we're us. So, we're so glad for your questions. Yeah, once again, our email is questionsforhope um, at gmail.com. Questions for hope. You can email us when we're off air, and in the next show, we will get to those. Thank you so much for joining us. Peter, Sean, thank you. Great hour. It went so quick. It seems to go quicker every time. God bless you all. We will see you next time on Reason for Hope. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.